Hey, this is Corey Wong. If you are interested in guitar players, if you're interested in artists and how they think, why they create, what it is that motivates them to create, come check out my podcast, Wong Notes Podcast, where I get to interview some of my absolute heroes, people like John Mayer, Niall Rogers, Jacob Collier, Madison Cunningham, Benson, Vi, Santana, Satriani, Lukather, Matheny. Oh, the names are insane icons of the guitar, icons of artistry and creativity. I absolutely love sitting down with these musicians and getting to ask them about their creative process and get into the details of why they do what they do. Check it out, Wong Notes. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to Chasing Frets. My name is Jason Shadrick, and I'm joined this week with Andy Ellis. Hello, everyone. And uh, as you heard, John Pizzarelli is our guest this week, and we are wrapping up this week, which has been such a fun week, with a real deep dive into bossa nova guitar and, and how that's influenced and how he learned about it. Yeah, and I have a soft spot personally for bossa nova because the, the harmonic borrows from jazz, the technique borrows from classical, the rhythms are unique to Brazil and all the history behind that. Um, and we get a master class in this podcast about how to start approaching bossa nova guitar if you've never played yeah. it. And and he even even pinpoints it down to like the section of highway outside of New Jersey where he really got bit by the the bossa nova bug, yeah. which is a really cool story. Yeah. So uh, you can hit us up yeah. at chasingfrets at premierguitar.com for any feedback or otherwise. And uh, dig into this uh, final episode with John Pizzarelli. All right, John. I enjoy your your jazz playing, your swing playing so much. But I think the bossa nova side of what you do is currently just destroying me. And my understanding, and this is going to be a question, my understanding may be wrong about the lineage of jazz guitar, but I think that from the tenor banjo where we were talking about earlier this week, into swing, and then swing evolved into bebop. Somewhere along the line, in the lineage of jazz guitar, the Brazilian bossa nova thing came in. And I was there in the 60s, and I remember Charlie Bird, Stan Getz, um, Sergio Mendes, uh, but it, it Maybe it was Stan Getz that first brought it into the jazz world. But how did you connect with bossa nova guitar, and how did you make it such a part of your sound? That's an excellent question, and I know exactly the answer, which is the best part, because it's the <laughs> same. It's the same thing as uh, the discovery of Nat King Cole, which was January, roughly January of 1980, where my father said you should find those Nat King Cole records. And I went to the uh, Sam Goodies and I got the best of the Nat Cole trio parts one and two. They were just released. Boom. And I, and my head exploded. And that summer of 1980, 
uh, I did eight weeks with my father. That's where we mentioned in a previous broadcast how the ear training started. He was playing those melodies every night. And I knew four songs on the first night and 104 on the, at the end of the eight weeks. So, but driving home, one of those nights, it was like a Thursday night or something on Route 7. I remember exactly where on Route 17 in Paramus where we were because Bob Jones on WNEW was playing Joao Gilberto's record of uh, is, the record was called Amoroso and the track was Besame Mucho and it just went on and on it's like a 7 or 8 minute track and it's absolutely gorgeous and it's Tommy LaPuma who produced it and my father said find that record tomorrow go out and get that record it was just midnight you know in the car so the next day went back to the same Sam Goodies and <laughs> Amoroso, which had been made uh, like three or four years earlier, I think, in 77 or 76. And I remember, and the first thing was uh, uh, Wonderful Mama You should care for me And it was like, okay, and I listened to that and then he did Estate and then he did Boom, 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 boom and then the last track was Besame, Besame Mucho. And so I was like, I just played the first side. I never flipped the record over forever until, until if that was 1980, I didn't flip the record over till 2004. I just listened to that one side because Daniel Jobim said, my grandfather's songs are all the second side. You missed the best side of music, you know, because Wave and well, Camino Cruzados and all this stuff. And Triste, I think, you know, one side. It's a great second side. Mm. So, but what I did was I was going, what is he doing on the guitar? Yeah. And that's the thing that I wanted to learn. And so when he was going... Uh, and I just broke it down as simply as I could. And it was the bass notes were always on one. And then the rest of the hand was doing the rhythmic stuff. So it was like, if it was D minor, and if you speed it up, but everything was still boom, 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 and the bass and everything. So that was basically my class was just listening to that record and going, oh, what is he doing? And then I translated to the seven string because there's a lot of great, always the fifth in the bass on those two, which is. So there'd be that fifth in the bass that always sounds so good. So sometimes you try not to take that out of there. You should, you have that seventh, I mean, that low string always available to you. But it became something that really was, uh, that changed everything for me on how to, what was going to approach the guitar on that. Well, Bucky was playing more rhythmically. Like he did uh, Oscar Peterson's Motions and Emotions with Klaus Ogerman, the same guy who did the Amoroso record, probably around the same time. But Bucky would be like... without playing the bass. Uh, 
so he'd play everything at once, you know, on the top strings, and sometimes work the other things in. It wasn't as um, it was a different style. It wasn't the same style, but I, so that's where we, you know, we cross paths. But he just it became an extension of his classical guitar playing that he started to play on on the, all the bossa nova records in that in that day. So my thing was to learn what is he do what is Wow doing and that'll help the way I'm going to sing and play because it was about being that the guitar is going to be the orchestra that supports my singing. Was your right hand technique, your fingerstyle right hand technique, um, already apparent to you when you got into bossa nova, or was learning the bossa nova style part of how you developed thumb, index, middle, and ring finger technique? I think it was more. I I, I had a a, a a poor technique for it, and I thought that once I learned what Joao was doing, then I was like, oh. Like I, it made more sense to me. I think it, what it did was uh, it would sort of be like saying uh, there were a lot of, you know, I, just, I got my, my musical ducks in a row. I felt like, you know, it made it for, it made it work easier and it made more sense, especially in a rhythm section. You know, that way I had a, you know, the bass could just literally, the bass didn't, even didn't have to. Even uh, the Duca de Fonseca said to my brother on a date, he goes, Martin, you don't have to go ba-boom. I'll do ba-boom. You just have to play boom, you know. <laughs> so he was like, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. You know, the, the bass drum's always going ba-boom, ba-boom. So, I mean, the, the, the thing that validated it for me, which is was when I made my Bossa Nova record for Telarc that Russ Teitelman produced, we had Paolo Braga on drums who played with Jobim, uh, with Antonio Carlos Jobim. And so I said, you know, it was the first question always was, it was whatever I'm doing, is it right? And he said, don't change everything. He goes, it's like an airplane. It's like 747. He said, kept saying 747 is taking off. So, and it's the same thing. We made a Bossa Nova record with Rosie Clooney and Paulina DaCosta was playing the uh, percussion. And Jeff Hamilton was the drummer, and we both were sort of, we'd go to Paulinho and say, is this right? And he'd say, don't change, everybody's okay, you know, because Jeff, same thing, was like studying what the Bossa Nova guys were doing, just like he would study what Don Lamond was doing, you know. So we had that kind of idea that, and it became fun to make those records with those guys, you know. That was always a, so exciting to play those rhythms with, with those drummers, you know, with Paul Owen and Daduka. It was always exciting. It was uh, a real eye-opener for me. I had first heard Bossa Nova guitar played by Charlie Bird um, on record. But then in, in the 70s, I'd say mid-70s-ish, mid um, I'd go visit my parents and in Annapolis, Maryland, oh, yeah. the King of France Tavern, sure. Charlie Bird trio, his brother Joe Bird playing bass and Charlie playing his nylon string guitar through a Baldwin amplifier with the push buttons, you know, <laughs> and, and to see, you know, he, he, he really had great classical technique. Um, but he also was very bluesy. He had that same kind of Herb Ellis, you know, I'm, I'm playing blues lines, you know, and somehow he managed to wrap it all together. Um, and I'd sit at, a t you know, it's a tiny little, it's a bar. They played there. <laughs> 
yeah, yeah, okay, so you know. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sitting there just going, I'm, I'm a guitar player. I don't know what you're doing, but it's, it's amazing. <laughs> it, was, it was great, you know, and, and that was the thing. You know, when you talk about what's happened, too, uh, in, in the years since Charlie Bird playing through a Baldwin amplifier, you know, they've changed. Mm. Even the quality of the pickups now on the classical guitars and uh, all those kinds of things have been godsends to get around the country and actually get a guitar that sounds like like a, you know as close as it's going to sound. But you can mic them better now and amplify them better. And I don't know how the hell he did it all those years. Yeah, yeah. And quick question about your nylon string seven string because okay, we're used to steel string electric guitars hollow body or solid body being seven string, but not until I started getting ready for this podcast did I realize that there was such an animal as a seven string nylon and, and you're holding it, you know, right now, mm -hmm. but also I examined some of the photos of record jackets of yours and uh, on your website and I, I counted the strings. Dang, there's seven strings there and it's nylon string. How? <laughs> is this a thing or did you have to get it custom made or what? I, I, I actually originally, that was the thing, I guess, uh, in the mid nineties, you know, I had the, we had six string classical guitars. My father had a couple of good ones, a Papazian and a Rubio that we would play around the house and they were six string. And then as I got to be, uh, you know, had the resources to say, who's making a good guitar. My friend Rick Hayden said, there's a guy in, was a guy in St. Louis named John Higgins, and he made these really nice nylon classical guitars with a little cutaway, and they they sounded great, and they really played well. And then as Bill Mole started making my guitars, he was also he was in Springfield, Missouri, mm -hmm. the one that I'm holding, and I want it to look like one of uh, uh, Joao Gilberto's guitars, but I wanted to connect at the 14th fret, so I got a little more space, but no mm. cutaway, because I love the look of Joao playing by himself just playing those songs on a little you know with his little footstool and and that kind of thing so bill made me this guitar and it's really worked out well i put a little uh rmc pickup on it and it sounds great so it's been uh and rick also gave me a couple there's a uh, there's a string company out of italy and i can't remember their name but they're really good nylon strings they they sort of even changed the the, the make the guitar sound a little brighter, which is nice. And the seventh, yeah. I think Hamaker, I forget the name of the two, but you know, we're just constantly trying to find the right strings and things that'll work well. And I think we, we have with this guitar. So it's, yeah. yeah. Did you ever go through, uh, we normally don't talk gear too much on the podcast, but did you ever go through like a, a, a phase where you're experimenting with like pedals and effects? I do. Well, in my teen, in my late teens, early twenties, I had a, I had my little, boss that, that silver that gray boss mm, box yeah. that fit five pedals in it and i always thought oh i did have a time when i thought that the uh that the equalizer might help for the guitar for some odd reason but as i got even older as a in my late rock and roll years of the, my 20s i just would plug my fender flame right into the mesa boogie because that sob sob amp you know you could go to set it to six and it would be clean and then you could Put your volume up to 10 and it would overdrive it sort of the same volume so uh, i sort of like the natural sound i started to really dig the natural sound of the guitar so i got away from having anything on the floor in front of me i like the idea of trying to 
plug into an amp and just getting a sound out of the guitar. So, uh, and I don't even use reverb. I mean, I tried, I, even when I was live, I don't use reverb on the guitar. I just plug it in and go, you know, so one of those things that I tried to make it as simple as possible. I think I, I've seen other guys do stuff and I go, that seems to work, but I'm, you know, I'm 60 now. And it's, if I start trying to experiment, I'm just trying to get the guitar in tune, you know, Jim Hall uh, uh, came to the whammy pedal late in life. There's still hope for you, John. <laughs> he still had those old amplifiers though, That's too, true. which were great. Yeah. I remember <laughs> one time seeing him at the blue note with Charlie Hayden and, and uh, they were just playing duo and he was, he was plugged into a, uh, a Fender deluxe reverb or something, but the volume on his guitar, the volume knob was all the way off. He wasn't even, wasn't right. even playing through the amp. He was just playing his, his decreased or whatever, just through the, it was, yeah. it was incredible. You know, when he's three feet in front of you and you're yeah. like, that's the sound, you know, that's the sound. Right. That's what I thought. But the first time I saw him, I was like, oh my God, that's what everybody's been talking about. And I, and I, it was exactly what had been explained to me by my friends, you know, going, well, you got to go hear Jim Hall. And I heard Jim Hall. Oh, that's what it is. It's, it was amazing sound. What's, uh, what's your favorite Jim Hall record? It's a good question. Actually, uh. I think maybe the one he made with Bill Evans might be the one. Mm, which one? That's a good question. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> There's undercurrent and intermodulation. That's a very good question. You know what? They're both great. I mean. Yeah. So, I mean, any, any, anything in there is good. I, I love the way he played. There's a there's a Quincy Jones record that he's on that he sounds real. Smackwater Jack, he played so great on. And there's also, oh, wow. I think, one with Bill Evans where – they're in a group with Zoot Sims and Bill Evans too, but oh wow! Uh, yeah. I'm still trying to conquer George Barnes. You know, they still my <laughs> country guitar is my favorite one. There, there's some really good George Barnes records. So, uh, what do you have coming up? You know, we've been locked down. You said you've been working on some Matheny tunes. Are you are you putting a Matheny record together? I am. I I I I, re I recorded here 14, 14 Matheny songs. And uh, I would record them here and send them out to my buddy, and he would uh, mix them for me. Just it'd just be one this guitar actually, and he would sort of uh, shine it up and send it back to me. And so that was a project. Uh, I just didn't think it was going to be anything, and then and it became some. Some of the I was putting up some of them like James and Last Train Home appear, and Phase Dance appear on my Instagram thing, mm -hmm. and. Um, and he said to me, don't put any more out there. This is too good. He said, let's make the record. Why don't you do it? So I started and, you know, uh, I think my father in, in his passing on April 1st uh, managed to get Pat Metheny actually wrote me a, a condolence letter. And uh, I wrote him back and, and I said, you know, I've been working on your things. Uh, he's, you know, I, I think Pat Metheny was really the has been somebody I've been chasing since 1976 too. And uh, I sent him one or two of the things that I did. And then he sent me the lead sheets. He said, here are the lead sheets of some of these things. If you really want to look them over. So that was a really big thing to get the actual music from the composer and then the yeah. work all those things out. So we've been in touch here and then, and he's just, uh, I still can't believe I, I write him, you know, once and say, Thank you for that. You know, it's sort of, he's <laughs> such a such a genius. On, and so I've been doing that. And then every Thursday I do my Facebook live concerts at yeah. six o'clock Eastern. So well, thank you, John, so much, man. It's been uh, it's been such a treasure to to hang with you and have you play a little guitar for us. Well, I appreciate your your time, and uh, I'm sure it's a good break between uh, 
McLaughlin and, and uh, Knopfler. 